All right, so a little quick review. If you've been with us for any matter of time, you know we've been working through uh, chapter 8 of Matthew. Um, and I believe that the Spirit, uh, as Matthew is writing this, is leading him to one conclusive thematic idea that he is getting across to his readers. And that idea is, and it's going to continue today here in verses 28 through 34, that idea is the divine authority of Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, the divine authority. That is what Matthew is trying to impress upon his readers. And I believe as well, that is what Jesus is beginning to reveal to those closest to him, primarily the disciples, who will continue to read about here in the passage today. But as a quick review, we look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Uh, again, we're just going to review. We're not going to read it all, but we see that Jesus demonstrates his authority over the man with leprosy. He comes to him, has faith, and Jesus heals him. We go on to the interaction with the centurion soldier who says, my servant is at home, he's paralyzed. Uh, Jesus offers to go and heal, and he says, you don't even need to go. Uh, he goes, I, I believe if you say the word, my servant will be healed, and sure enough, he is. And Jesus goes on to say, uh, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And it says that Jesus marveled, he was astounded, this man's faith. Uh, and then we see that Jesus then goes to the home of Peter, and he heals his mother-in-law of the great fever that she had. Then finally, last week, Pastor Chris spoke about, uh, as the disciples got into the boat, to go from the, uh, the west side of uh, the, uh, Capernaum there, the shore of Galilee, to the east side, uh, that a great squall or storm came up. I don't want to speak a lot about it, but I hate storms. And if any of you have been on any missions trips with me or maybe possibly a trip to Wyoming three years ago, uh, you remember hearing uh, stories about how the thunder tried to lick my heels and I ran up a mountain with two backpacks. I hate storms. Let me repeat that. I hate them. So when I think of what the disciples went through as we looked at last week, man, they genuinely thought uh, they were going to die. And of course it says they woke Jesus up. Jesus was trying to get sleep. He was tired. He was exhausted. He had been ministering and healing people. And uh, it was evening time, they wake him up, and he comes up, and he just simply says, Shut up! <laughs> Calm down! And it says that instantly, he showed, demonstrated his authority over the wind and the waves. And again, the passage says that the disciples said, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? They were astounded at his authority, at his power over the natural elements. As well, I think they were very fearful of this man they were in the boat with, and rightly so, because of his great authority. So we're going to see as we turn here to verse 28 and read through 28 through 34, Jesus once again is going to demonstrate his great authority, particularly over the supernatural. So follow along with me as I read out loud. We are going to reference the other two gospel accounts in regards to this story from Luke 8 and Mark 5, and so we'll jump. I'm not actually going to go and read them, so don't worry, you're not going to have to page flip constantly. But as a reference, uh, we are going to use their accounts to fill in some of this story as well. So let me read this, and then we'll do a little bit of a breakdown of the passage. Then we're going to talk about three responses that three different parties had. And then finally, we're going to look at, as our application, we're going to look at what do we learn about the heart of Jesus from this passage. Because whenever you open the Word of God, really our main goal is to see the heart of Jesus. Our goal is to learn the character and nature and heart of Christ. And so that's what we're going to focus on with our application. So let me read this aloud as you follow along in your word. Starting in verse 28 of chapter 8, it says, And we came to the other side, 
to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. The demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Verse 32, And he said to them, Go! And they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Verse 34, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and they all accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and went on to be missionaries for them throughout all of the region. Oh, 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 that's not what that says, is it? Yours doesn't say that. Mine doesn't say that. Uh, Many theologians have said this is probably, possibly the saddest verse in all of Scripture. Rather, it says, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region." They didn't want him. Well, I need to address a couple things before we do our color commentary of this passage. Because if you look between Mark, Luke, and Matthew, potentially you may find some discrepancies. Uh, two particular discrepancies and one ethical, ethical situation we need to deal with. Because some people really care about this third thing. So we'll address it. Uh, number one, Mark, or Matthew says that Uh, the disciples and Jesus were leaving Capernaum and they were going over to a region called Gadara, the city of Gadara, the region of Gadara. Uh, It was about a six-mile jaunt from shoreline to shoreline. Uh, However, Mark and Luke give other locations, the Gergeses and the Gerases. And so some people who might be skeptics of the uh, congruity of the Word of God and the inerrancy of the Word of God will say, well, see, look, there is discrepancy, how could we possibly trust the word of God? I mean, you got three different people writing three different things. Well, I mean, you know, what's the truth? Might as well just throw it all out. It's not true. And I think this is pretty easily explained. Uh, I live off of a road called 17 Mile. There's also another name for that road. Anyone know what it is? M46 painting. I mean, M46. Sorry, that was a little personal plug there. M46. Two different names, same road. If I say I'm going down to Alpine, where am I going? I just hear a bunch of speaking in tongues out there. What? What? Where are we going? I'm going to Comstock Park, right? So what I believe is going on here is you have three different authors writing to three different readers and using names of regions that would be familiar to them. That's what I believe is happening, not an inconsistency. Uh, secondly, Mark gives an account that there were two demon, excuse me, Matthew gives an account that there were two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke only speak of one demon-possessed man. And again, I believe there's a simple explanation to this, and that is Mark and Luke describe a more in length conversation with Jesus that this one particular demon-possessed man has. So he probably was the dominant or more vocal of the two, And that's what they choose to record because that was what was emphasized. They didn't say, and then the other guy who stood there and did nothing, uh, they didn't write that because there was nothing to write about him, okay? And then finally, the ethical issue that we have to deal with. 
And now some people are very concerned about this. In fact, I have heard sermons where this is what the point of the sermon was. Bad exegesis, if that's the case. And you're all wondering, what is he going to talk about? How can Jesus kill 2,000 innocent little piggies? <laughs> These poor little pigs were just fattening themselves up, minding their own pig business. And Jesus sends these demons into these poor little innocent smelly pigs. And apparently pigs cannot swim. Oh, that is terrible. Some of you are like, dude, don't joke about this. I love pigs. Pigs are amazing. Okay, I don't know what to tell you. Here's my answer. Here's my answer, which we're going to talk more about later. Jesus cares more about people than he does pigs. The whole point of this passage is that Jesus had a divine appointment with two men who were bound by demons. The pigs are kind of secondary on this one. Jesus cares about people more than pigs. Remember that. Okay, so those are the issues we dealt with. They're out of the way. Hopefully they're solved for you. Let's get into the passage and break it down a little bit. So, Last we left off, last week, Pastor Chris spoke about the storm. The squall came up. It was a terrible storm. It was a storm unlike, really, it sounds like some of these seasoned fishermen had never seen a storm this bad. It said that it was swamping the boat. They genuinely thought their lives were in danger and they were going to perish. Jesus, save us! Jesus says, shut up, storm. Shut up, waves. I know you're not supposed to say shut up. Sorry, kids. This is why they don't ask me to preach anymore. And it was calm. And so they continued on their way. So I want you to imagine being a disciple. You've spent the last 12 to probably 16 hours nonstop ministry, interacting with people with unclean spirits, interacting with people that have, that are, have been uh, sick and paralyzed. Uh, you've been working alongside Jesus a lot. You're tired, you're drained. Now you're just drenched like a, a wet rat. I mean, your boat swamped with water. And I don't know, because this, the text does not tell us, but it's interesting, how much did the disciples know about what they were going to see when they got to the eastern shore? I wonder, you know, did Jesus say, hey guys, you know, that was pretty bad what we just went through. I just want to uh, prime you a little bit for what we're going to see next. I don't think Jesus did that. I think Jesus uh, was kind of like, you know, I'm not going to tell these guys what's coming up. They'll jump out of the boat. So you got to get in your mind. The disciples are getting ready to get to the eastern shore. They're thinking, great, smooth sailing. Literally, from here on out, it's going to be wonderful. We'll get a little rest, maybe. I mean, I don't know. The text, again, doesn't give us the details. But I don't know if they were expecting this scene. As they're getting closer to the shore and they can begin to make out what they're seeing, they see a hillside and they see tombs because the tombs were built into the side of the hill. And as they begin to approach the shoreline and they get a little bit closer, they start to see two men. And you got to imagine Peter's like, are they naked? Are those guys naked? Jesus, uh, are you sure you don't want to port over here? 
do we need to go to this particular shoreline? And as they get closer, they see two men that are wildly, violently out of control. The scripture says that they were so violent that people could not pass through that way. Mark and Luke's account fill in some details and says that the spirits have driven them out into the desert. This is why they were living among the tombs. They had been excommunicated from the community. And they were violent and dangerous. It says that they, were hang they had chains and shackles hanging off of them as they had been subdued by the locals to keep them under control. But the supernatural strength of the demons, they were able to break these chains and shackles. It also said they were being driven so mad, they would pick up sharp stones and cut themselves all over. So I want you to imagine this, as gross as it may be. They're stark naked. They've been out there for, we assume, a long time because they, they had a reputation among the community. So they've been out there long enough where their hair is long and matted. Their beards are probably long and matted. It's covered in snot, blood, and spit. And I'm pretty sure they smelled tremendously bad. Really bad. Probably consistently bad as the herd of pigs not too far away. And this is what they are met with as they step onto the shoreline. These two deranged, crazy madmen screaming and shrieking at the top of their lungs. You had to have thought the disciples were like, are you kidding me? Can we catch a break? Seriously, I thought it was going to be a calm day. And the text tells us that they want, the one in particular from Matt, uh, Mark and Luke's account says that the man fell at the feet of Jesus. That he fell down at the feet of Jesus, not in a manner of worshiping him for who Jesus is, but rather in a manner of begging for his life. It says, he, he said to Jesus, O Son of God, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? If you have, please don't throw us into the abyss. Send us into these pigs. Luke's account tells us that Jesus addresses this man, and I believe that Jesus was actually addressing the man himself, not the demon. And he says, what is your name? However, because this man was possessed by these demons, the demon spoke, pushed his way front and spoke and said, we are legion. I don't know if he sounded like that, but maybe. I'm sure he sounded pretty creepy. I don't think he sounded like, you know, had an English accent or anything. I think he sounded pretty messed up. We are many. Legion in the Roman, uh, among the Roman soldiers could, could mean anywhere from four to 6,000 soldiers. So we're led to understand that this man was being possessed by anywhere between four to 6,000 demons, which would explain why he was out of his mind, would explain why he was cutting himself with stones and why he was naked and he did not care or have any shame, why he was living among the dead because he was being tortured. And they beg and plead with Jesus not to judge them before the appointed time. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But rather, send us to that herd of pigs. Luke tells us that there was a herd of pigs, about 2,000 in number, and that Jesus simply said, go! And they instantly left and fled into the pigs, and the pigs ran over a steep cliff into the water and drowned. Scripture goes on again to tell us that the herdsmen reported this. They went to town, they reported this, and they told all the townspeople. And uh, 
they weren't real pleased with that. So, I want to focus now that we've broke this down a little bit, focus primarily on three responses, and they are distinctively different from each one this morning, of uh, the three different parties in here. First of all, uh, if, if you notice, which it's, it's not a huge deal, but if you had noticed, the title of our message is The Christology of a Demon. Christology is the study of the personhood of Christ, learning about the biblical theological attributes that belong, belong to Jesus and the nature of Jesus. And so what we are going to see here with the first response of the demons is that the demons had a pretty accurate understanding of the personhood of Christ. Uh, they say some very, very profound things. In fact, many scholars have said in the past about this particular passage that these demons here have a more accurate Christology than many Christians sometimes. When the disciples said in the boat, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves listen to him, obey him? The demons are going to answer specifically that question. And look at uh, the first thing that they say. The demon, as he falls down at the feet of Jesus, he addresses him as the son of God. Uh, the account in Luke says that the demons recognized Jesus from afar. They knew exactly who had just come into their presence. They were very aware of the personhood of Jesus. And they understood that he was the Son of God. Along with that, by recognizing that he's the Son of God, they also recognize his divine authority. Which again, is the point of Matthew chapter 8. That Jesus has all supreme authority over sickness, disease, the elements of nature, the supernatural. Third, they also uh, openly confess this by asking the question, have you come here before the appointed time? Have you come here to torture us before our appointed time? The demon was referring to Revelation chapter 20. When God prepares judgment for Satan and his followers and is thrown into the lake of fire. The demons understand how this story ends. They full well know that Jesus has divine authority to be the judge and the jury over them and that impending doom and judgment is coming their way. Fourth, uh, they recognize they could not do anything in that moment. They were in complete Submission to the power of Christ, and in order to do anything, they had to ask for permission, because Jesus has supreme authority. And so they ask and beg and plead, please don't send us to the abyss yet. Send us to that herd of pigs. And then finally, they had an appropriate fear of Jesus, because they understood his power and his position. And this is not the type of fear when we talk about a reverence uh, for a holy God and we, we fear him properly because of our relationship with him. This is a genuine fear because they're going to be destroyed. James 2.19 says that they believe in God and yet they shudder. It's not an enduring type of situation. They're genuinely afraid of the power of the Son of God. 
they full well know who is standing before them. I wonder, is the Christology of this demon more accurate than, than you and I sometimes? See, where the, where the demons fail is they understood the knowledge about God. They understood the, the, the personhood of Jesus and all of the biblical traits, if you will, about his nature. Their theology was correct, but their hearts did not belong to Christ. I wonder, could that be said of you and I? You've lived as a Christian most of your life. You've been bathed in the church, if you will, in the word of God. You know things about Jesus. Is your will truly surrendered to the power and authority of Christ? Or do you just know stuff about him? What does it mean that Jesus has complete authority in your life? As you look at your life, are there areas of your life where yeah, I'm not really in obedience with the Lord on that one? Do you merely give mental assent in certain areas? Do you struggle with trusting him with all areas? Your children, your finances, your health, your marriage, or for those of you that are single and you're on the prowl, your dating life. Do you genuinely trust Christ with all of that? Do you really believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he will judge those who've rejected him? Because we don't come here just for fun. Like, uh, yeah, church can kind of be fun, and it's great when the worship team's up here. And, and we come here because we believe in a person named Christ. And if you don't understand these ideas, if you don't understand these biblical principles about the nature of Jesus, you've got to get in your word. You need to be reading the scripture and understand what is required of you as a believer. Full surrender to the authority of Christ in your life. Well, the second response we'll look at is found in the townspeople. And we've already commented on this a number of times. But I think there's three reasons why the townspeople essentially rejected Christ. Number one, they were afraid of him. Sure, they had seen people in the area do weird incantations and exercise demons, but these two demon-possessed men were known in the region. They, were, they had a reputation. And when the herdsmen went back to the town and said, hey, listen, I got bad news and, and bad news. <laughs> uh, not a whole lot of good news. There's this guy that just killed all your pigs. Please don't fire me. My bad. And then those two crazy guys that are screaming and cutting and spitting and snotting and covered in blood, they're sitting in their right mind at the feet of this guy. Something's going on. I mean, what would bring the whole town out? Hey, think about Kent City. What event brings the whole town out because you're so curious? I'm thinking a UFO lance. Okay, that, that's <laughs> probably would bring the whole town out. The whole town came out because they were scared to death about the news that they had heard. Number one. Number two was another big reason. And I believe it really, really reveals the heart of the carnality of these people. And possibly our heart too. They were more concerned about the financial loss that had just been laid at their feet. 
They were concerned about their pocketbook, their economy, their monetary value. And really, it comes down to this. Jesus was just simply bad for business. Jesus was bad for business. And really, that, uh, that's it. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for ruining the town. Hope you find your dad. See you later, Jesus. Go on the way. That's a Buddy the Elf reference, sorry. They didn't want him around. They didn't want anything to do with him. Inviting Jesus to come in and take up shop and residence, it looked pretty messy. I mean, he was here for five minutes and he destroyed half of the economy. Well done, Jesus, well done. Wow, that's a pretty amazing feat. What else could he possibly ruin if we invite him to take up residence here? It, would, it costs a lot to ask Jesus to come and to invite him into those areas. As you think about your life, are there areas that, ah, Jesus, I really don't want you to be a part of that one. Jesus, I'm going to leave you home on Friday night. I'll see you tomorrow, Saturday morning, about noon. Are there areas in your life where it would require you to sacrifice quite a bit in your mind to invite Jesus to have full authority in your life? The reality is that the response of the townspeople is the general response of the world towards Jesus right now. We live in a world that's been intentionally telling Jesus, we don't want you here for a long time. So if we as believers have areas in our lives where we refuse to invite Jesus to come in and take up residence and take over, why would we be surprised at the hatred that the world has chosen to show at Christ? Well, the third response is the one I hope that you find yourselves in. And the third response, according to uh, the account in Luke and Mark tells us that when one of the men who had been set free from demon possession, uh, when he was set free, he came back to Jesus, literally ready to step onto the boat to go with him because he wanted to follow him. His response was full of humility and gratefulness. He was ready to tell the world about the greatness of Jesus and his power. He was instantly ready to obey. You know, I wonder for you and I, some of us have been saved, we've been, we've been a child of Christ for a long time. And I wonder if sometimes we have forgotten what we've been saved from. I had a professor in college who, uh, in my Pauline literature class, was speaking about the Apostle Paul and we were, we were talking about all the different books that he wrote. And as you read the different uh, letters that Paul wrote, you, you really begin to get a feel for the heart of Paul. And one of the greatest things uh, that comes out, or at least this professor pointed out, was he believed one of the greatest things about Paul is that Paul never seemed to forget about what he was saved from. He never got over it. It never became, you know, oh, yeah, I used to kill Christians and persecute them. Yeah, yeah. He never forgot who he used to be before encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. I think we are so inundated with our horizontal viewpoint of life 
and so fixated on just trying to make it another day, just trying to keep our relationships afloat, trying to make sure our kids don't end up in jail, trying to pay our bills, just keeping our head above water that we forget we are not living for success here. We're living for something so much greater. We forget what Jesus has saved us from, and we get stuck in this everyday, mundane life. And I don't know if you guys have felt this, but over the last year and a half with all of the pandemic and all of the political fill-in-the-blank, <laughs> it's felt really heavy culturally, spiritually. It's just felt very, dare I use the word, oppressive. People who used to get along really well, they don't talk anymore. People who used to really easily forgive, they hold grudges and take offense really easily. If you've been set free, like this guy was set free, he was ready to conquer the world. I imagine he's like, do you know what my life was like? What else is there to do but tell people I'm free. Jesus says to him, man, that's awesome. You want to come with me? I have something greater for you to do. Go back to this region that is predominantly Gentile who do not know the name of Jesus and tell everybody you know what I have done for you. Okay, Jesus, I'm out. See ya. Man, if you have forgotten, as, as David prays in Psalm 51, if you've forgotten the joy of your salvation, beg and plead Jesus this morning to remind you of what he's done for you, of how he has saved you and restored you and set you apart. Finally, uh, one more thing. As we look at the life of Christ in this particular passage, there are three particular characteristics that I think are important to walk away with in the sense of seeing the heart of Jesus. That is the point. That has always been the point. What is the heart of Jesus beat for? God, give me that heart and help me to walk in faithfulness with that heart. Number one, and I already alluded to it earlier, but Jesus cares more about people than pigs. Some of you are here this morning or listening online, and you're not sure if you believe that based on your circumstances, based on the lot that has been laid at your feet. The only way that you can believe this to be true is by believing that the character of God is perfect. Despite your circumstances, despite your frustrations, despite the seemingly no way out of this situation, God's character is perfect. And you have to fall and rest on that biblical truth. If that is true, then Jesus cares for us desperately. How do I know that? He left the western side to go to the eastern side to meet two people, to brave the storm, to brave the demons, 
to be rejected by a town just so he could set a couple people free because Jesus loves people. He loves people. He doesn't care about pigs. He loves people. Jesus cares deeply and intimately about your life. Jesus knows your pain and your quiet struggles. But no one else understands them. No one else sees them. He knows them. Scripture is clear. He knows them. And again, Jesus' perfect character is what allows you to be able to trust him wholeheartedly. Secondly, what do we learn about the heart of Jesus, the life of Jesus? The demons told us. Jesus has supreme authority, which means he has sufficient power and strength to get you through whatever you're going through. Don't receive those as trite words. Oh, that's nice, a precious moments card. Do you believe in the supreme power and authority of Christ or not? It's not a sensationalized, theatrical thing. It's based on the biblical teaching of God's word. That Jesus has the ability and authority to see you through your worst situation. Fall on him. Allow him to prove his reputation true. Put it back on him to prove his name is supreme. This is not your battle, it's his. And I'm telling you, he is well equipped to fight it and to win it. Because he has already won it. And finally, Jesus has not saved you just for your own entertainment. Yay, I'm saved. I can go do whatever I want now. Nope. Sorry. You're not saved just for whatever reason. You have been chased by the Son of God because he wants to use you for his glory and purpose. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 tells, tells us that God has set Good works in advance. He set them up for you and I to pursue in faithfulness and obedience to do them for his goodwill and glory. Not for my glory. Some of you are going through things that are terribly difficult. And in your mind, you're like, this does not make logical sense that this could be for my good. I don't know what else to tell you other than that Jesus is jealous for his glory and he is asking you to hang on tight for his glory do not get sidetracked by all the distractions and the pain and the unanswerable questions of why me we're all gonna have a why me moment if you haven't you're gonna have one if you live long enough you're gonna have one that doesn't change the biblical truth that his character is perfect. And that he's made you for such a time as this. 2 Corinthians says he saved us. When we were the offender, he left the throne room of heaven and came down to our level to yank us back into relationship with him. And then, and then send us out with the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he did for this guy. You don't think this guy was just raring to go to make up for lost time? Man, do you feel that? Do you feel that in your life? 
Do you feel the fullness of joy and delight in knowing Christ and the mission that he's given you? And that may be as simple as go to work and work hard and love people, even the ones that are ugly and hard to love. Because you might be one of them, okay? That's the heart of Jesus. He loves people more than pigs. He has all authority and power, and he sets you free so that you can be busy about the work of the kingdom. I pray this week that you dial in to where Jesus is working and join him because he is working. And, and, and if you don't see he's working, it's because you have forgotten the joy of your salvation. You've forgotten what you were saved from. Allow Jesus to remind you of that this morning. Let's pray.